0: AV team, if if you could, could I get my first slide? Is that doable? Thank you. And uh, church family, I just want to thank you on behalf of the elders uh, for the sweet notes and the e-notes that you sent for Pastors Appreciation Month uh, for all the elders. And just please know our greatest joy and the greatest appreciation that we get is to see each one of you grow in Christ. And that is our eternal reward here and in the next life. Well, this morning we're going to start, maybe not in Matthew, we're going to, as you see, uh, go to John chapter 4 and just briefly mention an encounter with a lady who actually didn't appreciate Jesus very much. In fact, Jesus was more or less a nuisance to her during her daily chore of having to go every day in the absence of running water, And in uh, the Roman Empire, where the necessity for water on a daily basis made it obligatory for people to go to a well or some collection of water and do the heavy lifting of drawing water. And it's here in John chapter 4 that Jesus encounters, not by accident, this Samaritan woman. And as I said before, initially this woman has very little time and very r- little regard for Jesus. The last thing she needs in her life is another man. As Jesus later reveals, she has had five husbands before and she is now cohabitating probably and has and is working on her sixth man in her life who is presently not her husband. And we look at this as an outlier, wow, six men in their lives. But in actual fact, as we go through the Gospel of John and we go through God's Word, we see that in many ways this woman is fundamentally like all of us. She is a woman who is relentless in her fallen pursuit of what cannot satisfy relationships, right? Right? And specifically, relationships with men for her. But for us, it can be family. For us, it can be work or career. For us, it can be a spouse. It can be any of these things where we continually go back over and over and over again to look for someone or something else to satisfy our life. And it satisfies for a minute and a moment. And we stop and we're happy for a minute and a moment. And then when it fades, we move on to the next Spouse or family or career or ministry or pastorate. And we see that the problem is not the objects of our affection. The problem, brothers and sisters, begins in our heart and what our hearts desire. And praise God we have a Savior who comes and ministers to us in our depravity and the fallenness of our desires and our blindness of just going after the same thing over and over again. And He comes in, in His love and His grace. He enters into our lives when we are not looking for Him. He sits down with us and He speaks to us. And He is gentle and He is kind. And it is in verse 13 and 14 of John chapter 4 that Jesus says to this woman by way of illustration, using the well and her daily chore, He says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Life anew. Life from above. And as we read the rest of John chapter 4, Jesus walks through with this lady in her community where she's estranged and John, by the power of the Holy Spirit, shows us how this estranged lady, in fact, experiences Jesus' words firsthand. Her life, her heart, her desire is transformed. And at the end, her heart's desire is only to share with others who have probably treated her poorly in her community, to share with them the truth that the Messiah has come. Here is a man who has told Me, everything about me, everything that I've ever done. And we see that that satisfaction, that well of eternal life, that water springing up, she has tasted and she has been satisfied. And brothers and sisters, this really is what Jesus is talking about in the fourth beatitude in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And Jesus is pointing out the way in which He Himself brings grace into our lives and comes in and transforms every aspect of our lives and comes in and really gets to the heart of the matter. He transforms the very desires of our life. Because that's exactly what needs to be changed, brothers and sisters. It's not the circumstances or the things around us. It is what is in our hearts. And it begs the question of each one of us, what do we hunger and thirst for? What do we go back to repeatedly? What do we look for to sustain and satisfy our lives, our marriages, our ministries? I have to tell you up front as a a pastor, I look at this and see my own sin and my own shortcomings. How many times early in the ministry when we would be away on vacation for a few days and Julie would look at me and she would see that my brain was processing sermon prep, even though I was with the kids. And she would say, you know, you just need to go and do it. Don't be here with us if your mind is there. And I realized that for me, the thing I couldn't get away from was my work and getting my work done. But you justify it because, well, it's the Lord's work. But the problem isn't the work, brothers and sisters. The problem is our heart. But praise God, the good news of God's Word is we have a Savior who by His grace comes and He gives us an entirely new life in Him. And that entirely new life is a life of grace that changes the very desires of of our hearts. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we will read verses 1 through 6. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Brothers and sisters, are you satisfied this morning with your life, your work, your family, your spouse, and with everything that the Lord has blessed you with? Well, in Matthew chapter One through four, step by step, Matthew shows us, and this is by way of review to bring us back. And this all centers on who Jesus is. Matthew is showing us that Jesus of Nazareth is, according to God's word, he is the light of the world, and he is the promised servant, king. Of God's word. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Who has come to save his people from their sins. And this includes their sinful desires. And how has he come to do this? Well we've seen he's done it by bringing them into the new life of his kingdom. A new life of repentance and faith in him. And he does this as savior and as the king of God's word. And in Matthew chapter 3 through 4, this is what our Lord Jesus Christ has begun to do with his disciples. He's called them, he's proclaimed the gospel message to them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he's brought them into this life where he is their Lord, where he is the center of their life, where he is their king. And in Matthew 5, with the Beatitudes... Jesus begins to explain to his disciples what this new life in his kingdom, with him as their king, what this new life as a child of God, is all about. And it is this life, this new life of faith and repentance, faith in him, repentance from sin, that Jesus describes or declares to be blessed. And it is a stark contrast from the lives that these men had before they encountered our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's a visible difference. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were Galilean fishermen. Matthew was, uh, from all accounts, a successful tax collector. And these men, by the standards of the time, were strong. They were self-sufficient. They were independent men who lacked for little in this world. But now because of Jesus and because of the gospel they are becoming poor in spirit. They are becoming heartbroken over their sinfulness and over sins that they didn't even know they had. And they're beginning to lose their self-confidence And self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. And you'll see this as you read through the Gospels. And you follow in their footsteps. And you see the ups and downs, ups and downs. But as they go along. How there's these moments and times where they assert themselves. Or they show their swagger. And Jesus graciously and gently shows them. That they are way, way, way off track. That this is not what a child of God is. And this is not what a child of God does. Their lives are being changed into the blessed life that Jesus is explaining to them in Matthew 5. And why is their life changing? It's because, brothers and sisters, the truth and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when it enters into our lives, it changes not a few things. It changes everything. It changes everything in a believer's life from inside out according to God's Word. And according to Jesus, this is what it means to be blessed. It means to be a child of God who is being changed minute by minute, moment by moment, by the grace of God into a child who is pleasing to God. What we cannot do for ourselves. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. God's truth and grace in Christ changes everything according to God's word. It changes everything according to God's word. If you don't want to be changed, then don't roll with Jesus. Because in love, he is going to come in. And he is going to change not a little, brothers and sisters. He's going to change everything. And he does it because he loves you. In scripture, the word blessed implies a state or condition of overwhelming joy and happiness that can only come From the grace, the unmerited favor of God. And this is because, according to God's word, God's grace is a gift. And it's a gift, brothers and sisters, that, as we've said, changes everything. And with the Beatitudes, what Jesus is declaring to be blessed are lives that have been impacted, changed, transformed by Christ's presence In the lives of these disciples. He's spoken to them. He's come to where they live. He's had meals with them. He's entered into their life. But most important as you go through the scripture. It's not just about hanging out with these guys. Yes he lived with them life on life. But he said to them. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He proclaimed the truth. That in him the power and the authority and the rule of God had come near. And that there was a need in their lives for change. And that, brothers and sisters, is what repentance is all about. It's about Christ coming in and becoming the new power and authority and rule in our lives. And because he is present, there is no room for sin or sinful desires. There's only room, brothers and sisters, in a kingdom or in a home for one king. It's as simple as that. Husbands and wives, do I lie? I'm not trying to push a male agenda, but we know, right? Where there are two kings in the kitchen, the meal and the food doesn't taste too hot, right? We know where that goes. And and very much so, the beauty and the good news of the gospel is we get a new king. And our old king, which ultimately was our sin and our sinful desires and us and all the other things that it's tied to, that gets moved out of the way because there's a greater king with a greater power, a greater authority, a greater rule that comes in under new management. And he comes into the kingdom and the sweetness here is he doesn't just come into the kingdom and say, okay, I'm happy with this dump and we're just going to keep it here. And it's he's not a slumlord. There to exploit and leave things you know, in terrible condition. He's there to change the washer, the dryer, the kitchen, the plumbing, the foundation and to rebuild from the ground up. Why? Because he loves you. And also because he knows what's best for us. And brothers and sisters, this is what the new life of a child of God is. And it's a new life, as Jesus shows in the Beatitude, that begins now in this fallen world. But it continues step by step throughout eternity. And that's why as you go through the Beatitudes, if you'll notice, he starts most of these Beatitudes in the present tense and then moves to the future. There are two parts to each one. And he's showing globally, blessed are those who, they're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. They're going to be children of God. But there is a time of what we are like and what that blessing is like here and now. And then there's what happens over time. And that's the beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not a Benny Hinn moment. It's not a prosperity gospel moment where we expect that zap and there's this instant transformation. And we love those testimonies because they fit the two-hour movies. But we see with our Lord and Savior, He is gentle and He's good. And typically, like the disciples, He goes step by step by step by step, probably because, in part, we couldn't handle any more than that. And just like we, with our children, do we expect our children to be the professional soccer players? Do we expect them to be the academics who automatically get perfect SAT scores? I hope not. I hope there's an understanding that there's a life course of a child from infancy to maturity where they go step by step by step and the good and loving parent is going to understand there's an appropriate place. For this child at each step of the way. And I'm not going to put more on this child than he or she can bear. But I will walk with this child. I will carry this child. And I will provide the grace this child needs. To walk through every step. So they get to where they need to be. When they need to be there. And that brothers and sisters is the perfect love of our father. And it's with the first four beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Together these are linked. And Jesus shows to the disciples and us that this new life of a child of God that begins with his truth and grace changing our lives. These are all testimonies and evidence of a grace in our lives that is bringing us to a place of repentance and faith. In him. That's what these are the hallmarks of. And they build one on top of the other. And together as you look at them. They are all these first four. Because the last four are going to be a little bit different direction. The first four are all about the direction of a heart. Where is the direction of the heart when it is poor in spirit? Where is the direction of a heart when it mourns and grieves. And is heartbroken over sin. And the things that God is heartbroken over. What is the direction of a heart when it is meek, when it is devoted and dependent on the grace of God? What is the direction of a heart when it hungers and thirsts for righteousness? Well, you'll notice that all of these are about a heart whose direction is no longer about living for myself or me. It's a heart that is directed towards God and towards the love of God and the grace of God. That, brothers and sisters, is what repentance is. It's not me doing good things to cover up my bad things. It's about an entire shift in the direction of my heart. Where it is moving and the direction, the inclination, the desire and where it's going. Is towards a father who loves me. As opposed to a slave to sin. Where the direction of my life is strictly satisfying the tyranny of sinful desires that keep me going back to the same fleshly and broken things over and over and over again. And brothers and sisters, this is what happens when Christ enters our life as king. We who are rich by the world's standards begin to see how poor we are before God. And we who were once blind to our sinfulness, we begin to share God's sorrow over our sin. And we who once lived only for ourselves and our sinful desires, now we begin to see our desperate need for His mercy and for His righteousness and for His grace. These things suddenly become important to us. Why? Because I'm no longer living for myself and my sinful desires. I have someone far sweeter, far greater, far more powerful and far more wonderful to live for than Mark Chen. And that, brothers and sisters, is a relief. I had a patient of mine who I would never have known when I met him. He was doing fine in his career. And then he shared with me he had a previous life in a biker gang. And I was young and foolish and stupid. And I said, oh, that sounds kind of cool. You know, he's all... Shirt and tie and respectable. And he goes, no, it wasn't. He said, I was happy to be done with that life. He said, I was just going from, from one robbery to another trying to feed a drug problem. And he said, when it was done and over and I walked away, I was so relieved. I was free. Right? And brothers and sisters, we might not be drug addicts or members of a biker gang. But we look at the addictions in our lives. Our addiction can be work, our addiction can be ministry, our addiction can be family, our addiction can be all of these things that we live for that satisfy for a minute and moment and we keep on going back and when we don't get what we expect we grow frustrated and we grow irritable. And the beauty of God's word and the beauty of our savior is he comes in and he gives us something that satisfies eternally what we were created for which is him. And brothers and sisters, that's what all these first four Beatitudes are all about. And this is what it means, brothers and sisters, to be blessed by God. It means you're a child of His grace where you never have to worry about receiving what you need because God is your Father who loves you. He knows what you need, not what you want. And He is more than able to give and satisfy it at the time That you need it. Now, usually we want it now. But that's where faith comes in. And this, brothers and sisters, is what hungering and thirsting for righteousness is all about. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, it's about a radical change in what our heart is and what our heart desires. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. God's grace in Christ transforms the desires of our hearts. God's grace in Christ transforms the desires of our hearts. New Testament scholar Charles Quarles fairly points out that unlike most first century Jews, few modern Americans have ever experienced true hunger or thirst. Because of poverty, famine, and siege, first century Jews were familiar with the powerful and even painful craving of the body for food and drink. And brothers and sisters, it it says something about our nation. That when we talk about powerful and painful bodily cravings, when those things come up in discussion, most people would think we're talking about substance abuse. Right? But from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the biblical authors repeatedly use hunger and thirst as a metaphor for the most fundamental and intense desires of the human heart and soul. The most fundamental and intense desires of the human heart and soul. It's part of what Jonathan Edwards referred to as the affections. They are what defines who we are. They are what reveal the direction of our lives. What we crave for, what we desire the most. That shows what your heart is really all about. Your priorities, what makes you tick. What we live for and what we Can't live without. So, once again, brothers and sisters, it's worthwhile to do a check in our lives. What are the things we long for? What do we crave? What are the things that we can't live without? What do we get irritable and upset over if we don't get? It can be validation, it can be understanding, it can be me time, it can be time with your family. It can be financial and emotional, emotional security. And all of these things, as you see, brothers and sisters, they're not bad things in and of themselves. But when they become the things that we desire most, when they become the things we can't live without, they become revealing about who we are and what our heart is and who we're living for. And according to God's word, in contrast, this is not how God created us to be. And sadly, it's from Genesis 3 onwards, what we see is the fundamental craving of our sinful hearts is simply to please ourselves. And that's where many of these things go. It's not the object, it's, it's what's the direction of the heart. How often are these things I want someone who understands me. I want financial security. I want a good career. I want a good spouse. I want a good place to live, to raise my children. Not bad things in and of themselves, but brothers and sisters, ultimately, I think if we're honest, many times, many of these things are really about pleasing ourselves. What we think is best, what we think is right, And what we think we need or our families need. And the modern day term for that is selfishness. Now in scripture, this is a reflection of the total depravity of the human heart. That starts in Genesis 3 onwards. Where the only thing we live for is to please ourselves. And it begins with Adam and Eve. And it spreads through Cain. And it goes through every generation. And St. Augustine would point out. He would say you can see this in babies. You can see it from conception onwards. You see it with a nursing mother. And you see in the way in which a baby will fuss. And throw a tantrum. When it does not get what it wants. Or what it feels it needs At the moment, it feels they need it. Our hearts are bent towards satisfying and pleasing ourselves. And brothers and sisters, this quite simply is the expression of a heart that is ruled by sin and sinful desires. It's what we like to point our fingers at others and talk about as far as addiction. And yet we see in each one of these areas, whether it is the addiction to a substance or a career, that ultimately this desire to please ourselves, however respectable it is that we channel it into, ultimately ends up destroying our relationship with God and it ultimately ends up destroying our relationship with those around us. It brings death to all of it. Why? Because it's contrary to God's character. It's contrary to what's good. And it's contrary to what's right. And it's contrary to what's good for us. We weren't designed or created to be this way. But brothers and sisters, the good news of the Beatitudes and the good news of God's word is when Christ becomes king of our lives and the presence of his truth and grace comes in and begins to change our hearts. The fundamental change that begins to happen Is that we increasingly stop desiring to live for ourselves. But instead, because of God's grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because of His unmerited favor. Because of the forgiveness of sins He brings in. Because of the way He washes us with His word. Our desire through this heart that is transformed by grace is no longer for ourselves because we realize we're worthless. There goes self-esteem, right? Like the Apostle Paul. But instead, we realize that everything of infinite worth, God has given to us in His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the heart changes, and the heart is transformed, and it begins to desire not to live for ourselves, but to live for God. He becomes the object of our affections. And our fundamental desire and longing starts to change because this is the fundamental desire of a true child of God's grace. And this is why Jesus declares in verse 6, Blessed are those whose most fundamental and intense desire, greater than even their desire for bread and water, is there longing and desire for what? For righteousness. And in verse 10, he goes on in the Beatitudes, in the second half of the Beatitudes, and he points out, so great is this desire for righteousness that the children of God and those who are blessed count it as joy when they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What are you willing to suffer for? Your family, your wives, your husbands, your children, your church? Okay, what are you willing to suffer for and what will you count it as a privilege and a joy? I remember a group of my fellow students in college going to play golf, right? Some guys out in the golf course shaking it away, right? The golf ball starts coming in the direction of all my buddies, and someone says, Four, four, four. What do they do? They hide behind one of the guys. Nobody's willing to take the hit, right? The Lord comes in, and necessarily He shows. That what we live for as a child of God is no longer ourselves. Our priorities change. And you see people like the Apostle Paul and Peter. Who at the end of their life. Their joy. Their happiness. Their contentment. Is suffering for the name of Christ. And of course where do we see this most visibly brothers and sisters? Our Lord and Savior. Who is willing to die on the cross. And suffer the full wrath of God against sin. Why? Out of love for you and I. Because this is what pleases the Father. And as you come to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus points out to the children of God. That righteousness is more important than food, water or clothing. And he closes it out in verse 33 of Matthew 6. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in fact, he mentions righteousness six times in the Sermon on the Mount. It comes up over and over and over again to the point where some commentators look at the Sermon on the Mount as the Sermon of Righteousness, that this is what it's all about. So what exactly then is this righteousness that a true child of God hungers and thirsts for? Sadly, brothers and sisters, for those of you like me who grew up in the church, our propensity is to think of righteousness as what we say, what we think, and what we do. Okay? How much you know about the Bible, what you do in church, ministry, and that is what is referred to as religiosity. The things that we do. This is why we read our Bibles. This is why we go to church. This is why we serve in ministry. We do so because these are righteous deeds, right? And as we look at that, that's very similar to every other faith in the world. Be it Islam, be it the Hindu faith. It's everybody is, what do I need to know? What do I need to do? And what do I need to say in order to be a good person? And once again, I'm going to challenge you with that. When we look at it and we think about righteousness in that way, and when we raise our kids, that's what they see, modeled, okay? They, psh, and it gets filtered through a legalistic mind, and so that's where it goes. And people come, what do I need to do? What do I need to learn? How much of the Bible do I need to read? But when we look at that pattern, brothers and sisters, what do I need to do to be righteous? We really see that many times we're doing these things for Who? Who are we doing it for? We're doing it for ourselves, right? It's like I take a course so I can graduate, so I can get a medical degree, degree, so I can practice medicine. I'm not doing that for anybody else. I'm doing it for me. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we call self-righteousness. And that is really what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the professionals in. And might I add, many pastors and many seminary people. Okay. I'm righteous because I know so much more than other people. I do so much more than other people. And I say things better than everybody else. But what does Jesus say as he addresses this type of righteousness? Well, in Matthew 5.20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And brothers and sisters, what good news is that? Okay? Heaven and the kingdom of heaven and fellowship with God is not based on a 4.0 GPA in a seminary. Now, you need to learn the word of God because how else are you going to know what pleases him and what's right? But brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus Christ is that the righteousness that we need is his righteousness, not ours. And in Matthew 6.33, the righteousness that Jesus commands us to seek is not our righteousness, it is the righteousness of God. And why is that? That's because your righteousness and my righteousness ain't worth a lick. Right? And this brings us to our third point for the morning. The children of God's grace hunger and thirst for his righteousness. The children of God's grace hunger and thirst for his righteousness. We were on a um, conference call, a Zoom call yesterday with Ricardo. And they're doing a conference this weekend on the church. And he was sharing with the elders how he was reading this book that sought to remind us That the church and what composes the church, it's about who we are and what God has done in our lives. But our tendency is to think of church as what we do. Okay? What's ours? Well, in Scripture, righteousness doesn't begin with what we say or do or know. It doesn't begin with any of those things. You go through all the accounts of righteousness. It doesn't begin there. Now it involves what we say, what we do and know. But that's not where it starts. It begins and ends with the heart and character of our eternal creator. It begins with God. Righteousness is an attribute and perfection of God. That describes who he is. And it describes what he loves. Psalm 11.7 for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. In Psalm 33, 5. He loves righteousness and justice. And both in the Old Testament and New Testament. The Hebrew and Greek words for righteousness and justice. Come from the same root. Where righteousness is the quality of being right. Of being just. Of being true or correct. And justice is the act of carrying out what is right and what is just and what is true. So this is before your time. But for any of you who were around in the States in the 90s, more than in your mother's tummy, you would see that most of the films and TV shows would have that word over and over again, justice, or some variation of justice. And we see that it's very much part of the framework of what we go to see. We think of Marvel Comics, right? Is it Marvel or DC? DC is Justice League, right? I'm dating myself here. Okay, so you get all these superheroes in costumes who are out there and what are they all about? They're making things right. They're doing things that we can't do, right? We see that justice is about carrying out what is right and what is just and what is true. But both these words, righteousness and justice, both in the Hebrew and Greek, they carry out for us the sense, this is the sense of what they are. It's about a consistent conformity to a set standard. It's about a consistent conformity to a set standard. And in Scripture, the set standard of what is right, what is just, what is good, it's not you or I or the Bill of Rights. That set standard of what is right and just and true is the character and heart of God, the one who created us. He is what is by definition right. He is by definition true and faithful. He is by definition good. As Jesus would say to the rich young ruler, there is no one good but God. And this is the standard... That God in his life and his word always adheres to because God is faithful and true. He does not lie. And this is the standard for righteousness and for justice in all the world. Does this person or act conform to the heart and character of our God who created all things? Does it conform to his holiness? Does it conform to his definition of what is right and good according to his word? And then, in contrast, what is evil? What is wicked? What is false? It is anything that does not conform to the standard of God's holy character and person. Now, I know that sounds harsh, right? What a standard. This is what righteousness is. Is it right according to God's word? Is it right according to God's character? His perfection. When I was a medical student, someone messed up on the prescription, on the IV medications. Leanna can probably appreciate this. Of the whole hoopla of what happened on the floor when someone found out that the numbers were wrong and the percentage were wrong and the decimal point was wrong and the medication that was being given was not according to the standard and protocol. What's the big deal? Conforming to a standard. Well, it's because it's life or death. It's negligent, right? Someone can die from that. And what we forget when we come back to God's word, but God reminds us, Brothers and sisters, any deviation from the character and the heart of God takes us to a place that destroys our relationship with God, destroys our heart and defiles us, and destroys our relationships with everyone around us. It's a life or death matter. And the testimony of Genesis 1 and 2 was that in love, the Lord God created us, you were created... To be righteous and just and true. God created you to be that way. That's why there's still some semblance of that when things go wrong and we become outraged. You were created to be righteous and just and true. You were created to be in the likeness of God. You were created to be in His image. You were created to be like God in order to share His heart and His character and His life. You were created to be His children. And you were created to be His children, to be like Him and with Him. Living in his favor and his fellowship. That's what it means to be blessed by God. For most, this is not everybody, but the natural inclination of most children with a good father is the desire to be with that father and to be like that father. You see children putting on their dad's clothing. Or putting on or combing their hair in a particular way. Or clinging or wanting to be around. Especially in strange places or in new places. That's a natural inclination of a child with a good father. And so we see brothers and sisters. That to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is to have an intense and overwhelming longing. For the Lord. To be like God. To be with God. To be conformed to His image. To love what God loves. To hate what God hates. Why? Because there's a fundamental desire to be with God. To share His life according to His word. Because He is good. And this is what pleases the Lord. And this is what gives the Lord joy and delight. The joy and delight is the child who comes to him. And as we tell our boys, a Christian is not someone who is perfect. None of us are. But a child of God is someone when there's a problem or there's an issue, the person they go to for help is their Heavenly Father rather than my job, my career, my ministry, my friends. Not to diminish any of those things. Our brother, share with me. Hey, This is what I think I need. Some of you come and say, well, listen, this is what I need. I need more time in the word. I need more accountability. I need all of these different things. But brothers and sisters, the fundamental need of the human heart, as good as those things are, those things are not substitute for the one thing we need. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. And that's ultimately what we need. Now, some may ask, but Pastor Mark, isn't righteousness about knowing and obeying God's command? Doesn't Deuteronomy 6.25 say, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all his commandments before the Lord our God? Isn't righteousness about obeying God's commands? And my answer to you is, well, sort of, because if you go back to Deuteronomy 6.4, before it makes a statement about obeying God's commands. If we look at the context. What is Moses saying? Deuteronomy 6.4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So, brothers and sisters, we do not hear and obey God's commands to be righteous. We hear and obey God's commands because He saved us, because we belong to Him, because we love Him with all our heart, mind, and soul. And to obey Him is a joy and a delight, because as we do so, we walk with Him. And we do so because what it means to be righteous is to have that inner desire and longing to be pleasing to the God who loves us and has given everything to us righteousness at its heart brothers and sisters and this is where Jesus is showing the distinction between the Pharisees and the Sadducees who talk about how great they are and how much money they give in the offering and the tax collector who's beating himself up in the corner because he is grieved over his sin before the Lord and he realizes he can't make himself right. His righteousness is not good enough. It's as filthy rags before the Lord. What he needs is a God who is righteous and can make him right. And Jesus points out that at the end of the day, the person who goes home justified are not the Pharisees and Sadducees, but the tax collector. And brothers and sisters, if you're a sinner like me, that's good news. That the hunger and thirst is for a righteousness that is better than our own. It's for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, brings us to our final point for this morning. Children's, children of God's grace are satisfied with the righteous life and love of Christ. Children of God's grace are satisfied with the righteous life and love of Of Christ. Brothers and sisters. Who is it that demonstrates. True righteousness. It's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is why God sent his son. So that we could see what real righteousness is. A life that lives to please the Lord. A life that loves what God the Father loves. And hates what God the Father hates. A life that hungers and thirsts. And is willing to suffer for what is right. According to God's word. And where do we see this fulfilled? Brothers and sisters, I know you know where I'm going with this. This, It's the cross. But it's the cross where we see justice implemented. God's hatred of what is evil and what is wrong. His faithfulness to carry out what is right. What is right? That sin and evil be punished. Life for life. We can't pay that price. And so Christ goes on the cross. Perfectly righteous. Righteous. Perfectly innocent. Perfectly good. And he pays the price. Why? Because he loves the righteousness of God. Because he lives to please the Father. And the Father's desire is to love you and to save sinners and provide forgiveness. And yet without doing it in a way, well I'll give you a pass. No, to fulfill his righteousness and his justice perfectly. And who is it who steps in and says, I love righteousness. Righteousness. And I will stand in the place of sinners so that they may stand rightly before the Father. So that they may be children of God. So that they may come into the fellowship of the Father and enjoy a life that is free of guilt and free of sinful desires. So that they might become the righteousness of God and that they might no longer live for themselves. But now they can live For the God who gave his life for them. That's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's righteousness brothers and sisters. And we see with the woman at the well. That she begins to get that. And the disciples they begin to get that. As Jesus comes into their life. We see the way in which they become aware. That their life isn't as good as they thought it was. They become aware that they're missing something. They become aware that there is a person in their presence. Who has what they so desperately need. And he is willing to give it to them. And we see the way in which the grace in their life begins to give them, step by step, an appetite for what God created them for. And as time goes on, we begin to see in the life of a true child of God where Christ has been present and that heart has been transformed and those old desires are beginning to be destroyed and that new desire for Christ is beginning to grow. We see that nothing less than Christ will satisfy. And brothers and sisters, that is why we read our Bibles. We don't read our Bibles to be good people. We read our Bibles to learn about Jesus. Because we love him and we desire to have all that he has. And what he's given us, he's given us through his gospel. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we serve in ministry. Why do we serve in ministry? Not to be righteous. It's because we follow Christ's example. We see that's where he is. We see that Christ has a love for his people. We see that that is what righteousness is. We share in his life. And it's the love of Christ in us that desires, well, if this is the people, these are the people who Christ loves, I want to love them too. So we see in Psalm 34, 8, what does the psalmist say? He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And we go on to see the Apostle Paul in Philippians. He makes it clear. He says, There's nothing else that satisfies. I count everything in this life as absolute rubbish in order that I may gain who? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he talks about the righteousness that comes, the righteousness of Paul, who was a murderer. He doesn't have to worry about his righteousness anymore. He doesn't have to worry every day I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. Why? Because Christ is his king, Christ is his Lord. And with Christ, he has a righteousness that is not his own. He is right with God, not because of himself. But because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, where does that leave us? Let me break down the application as simply as I can and as briefly as I can. And thank you for bearing with me. Number one if you don't desire Christ and you don't desire to be with Him, you are either a very sick child of God who is on life support, or you're not a believer. And we have to look at that and we have to look at our lives and say, okay, what do we really desire? Do we have this desire? Do we have this joy and delight in spending time with Christ? Spending time with him in prayer? Spending time with him in the word? Of being alone with him? Of just really being poured into by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Is that the desire of our heart? Well, if you're not there, that is God's desire for your life. He wants you to delight in him. Because his delight is to pour his grace and to transform you and set you free from living for yourself. But what about Christians and what about believers? Well, what helps is when we go and see Paul's exhortation, what we've been going through to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. He says in Ephesians 4.24, Put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And he shows that as believers, this life that we're on goes step by step. We don't get zapped and become good all of a sudden. God works with grace and he walks with us. But as we go through, we've got this battle with our sinful flesh and sinful desires. And we have a choice. We can put on that new life of righteousness. We can walk with Christ or we can continue doing what we used to do. And in 1 Timothy 6:11, he says to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue steadfastness, pursue gentleness. And then in 2 Timothy 2:22, he tells Timothy, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, And peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Okay? And so we have to look at this. Why don't we desire the righteousness of God? If I was to invite all of you out, say, hey, I'm going to take you to the best sushi restaurant in North America. Here's the date. Here's the time. How many of you would go out to McDonald's like a half hour before and load up? right? But brothers and sisters, that's what we do as we live in the world. We're loading up on crap, okay? We're filling our faces with it. And then when we come to the word of the Lord, it's like, well, it doesn't excite me too much. I don't feel too connected. I pray, but it's, you know, I don't get a whole lot out of it. It's like, well, listen, man, you just, you know what I mean? Had four quarter pounders and four fries, of course. Of course. And so brothers and sisters, lovingly, it's worth looking at your life and saying, okay, what do I go back to over and over again? And Paul is exhorting Timothy as he's having a hard time. He's saying, look, you have Christ. You have his grace. It's at work in your heart. Don't get sucked in to going back to those old, youthful passions. And for Timothy, many of them were respectable. Outstanding preaching, having a crowd, all the respectable things, okay? They weren't trash. But he's saying, look, prioritize. Put off those fleshly pursuits. And for many of us, brothers and sisters, we have to admit, it's social media, it's entertainment, it's all the things that press our buttons, right? We fill up, we gas up on that. And we have to look and say, okay, let's start with the Lord. Let's start with being intentional about enjoying and delighting in his presence. Let's start bit by bit by bit. I have a secret. My wife, you'll humor me for a minute. I got to get out of the pulpit here. My wife did not like sushi when I first met her. She wasn't a big fan. So I said to her, it's okay. You know, I'll still marry you. No, no. Um, you know, you probably like, because I grew up in Toronto, Canada, I wasn't on a coast, I was in inland back in the day, no, you know, no sea coastal, okay, so not great sushi, and said, hey, you know, when I grew up, I had terrible sushi all the time. So real difference when you have the best. And so I said, look, why don't we just start slow and just have a little bit of the best and taste it and see if you like and if it's good. And so, brothers and sisters, this is my exhortation to you with the Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The place to start is to begin tasting bit by bit by bit the sweetness and goodness of the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to make, as Peter says, or, or excuse me, Paul to Timothy, a priority to feed on the Lord through prayer and through the Word. And even as you get ready for church, brothers and sisters, to consider what you're doing the night before. Not to be a good person, but just to prepare your heart so that when you come down and sit at the feet of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and you sit at his table for food, your heart is ready to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. You are sweetness and goodness. You are righteousness. Lord Jesus, would you be our righteousness? Would we be satisfied with nothing less than Than you. Would we be your joy and delight. Because our hearts. Are given and surrendered fully. To what is truly good and righteous. Which is you. In your name we pray. Amen.